And welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller, and I am privileged each week to continue serving as your host and moderator. Man, do we land an interview today. Emmanuel Acho, former NFL player, interim recent host of The Bachelor, massive influencer, likely the next host for Jeopardy at the rate he's going. <laughs> he is the author of the new book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Boy, a young reader's adaptation of a previous book called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Emmanuel, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, it's a pleasure to be joined by you. I feel smarter through osmosis just by being in the presence of you and your incredible bookshelves. Well, the books you mean, not so much me. You can judge me by the end of this interview, but hey, we are so pleased that you fit us into your schedule. I mean, I saw you on Twitter today on Ellen. I saw you on Good Housekeeping. That you would give us some of your time today is enormously gracious. You know, Emmanuel, I really think you're an educator. I mean, yes, you are an expert professional athlete and you are a viral you know, YouTube sensation. You're an author, you're a coach, you're a mentor. But at the end of the day, you're a teacher because you're educating literally millions of people around the world on how to have this comfortable, uncomfortable conversation around race and equality. Uh, today, your new book is out, Uncomfortable Conversation with a Black Boy. Would you just reorient the millions of listeners and viewers that may have some context for what's going on here? How did this all start? Yeah, so um, very succinctly, after the murder of George Floyd, I, a 29-year-old black man at the time, Scott, had to figure out what to do. I didn't know if I, if I should just cry, if I should vent. I didn't know if I need to just lament. But then I paused, Scott, and I said, do not complain about a problem unless you are working toward a solution. And I realized this, my voice is my sword. So I didn't go out to any protest. I didn't make any signs. I didn't go out and march. Rather than going outside, Scott, I went inside to a studio. I called a wedding videographer and my best friend who's an Olympic track and field athlete, and she stood in as my producer. The wedding videographer and his wife stood in as my executive producers and videography team. And for nine minutes and 27 seconds, I answered four questions that I know my white brothers and sisters have had. Why can black people say the N-word, but white people can't? Okay, Emmanuel, what is white privilege? Okay, but what about black on black crime in Chicago? Why is no one talking about that? And lastly, why are black people protesting and rioting? After that video was posted, um, within five days, it had 25 million views. I get a call from Oprah's team shortly thereafter. Hey, Emmanuel, this is Oprah's team. Do you all have a, do you have a second to chat? Do I have a second? <laughs> Does Oprah have a second? Because I have a second. My voice starts getting all high pitched. Like, oh, I have a second. Um, <laughs> So next thing you know, I hop on a call with Oprah and Scott, she asked me this one question. She says this, Emmanuel, what is your intention? And I said, Oprah, my intention is to change the world and I truly believe I can. I told her I plan on doing so by writing a book. She said, books? I love books. <laughs> um, and so Oprah and I partnered together on uncomfortable conversations with a black man that instantly became a New York Times bestseller. But more than talking to the adults, I had to. It was imperative that I write a follow-up for the youth. Um, and that is why Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Boy has now arrived. Emmanuel, you are leveraging a very smart model. As you know, our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, best-selling personal leadership book of all time. 
40 million copies. His son, Sean Covey, then wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. That book sold 5 million copies. I think you are geniusly leveraging the, the legacy that is from your first book. Why did you choose it to be focused on black boys? Well, very simple. Your experience is your expertise. Mm -hmm. And my experience wasn't being a black man and prior being a black boy. It's funny, and I'm not one to hold up my book during the call, but if you see the back, and for those listening, on the back of my book is this 12-year-old black boy with a gap tooth and chip tooth with chubby cheeks and no hairline. That's me. Um, it's myself pictured on the back, very awkward looking, because Scott, before I was a black man, obviously I was a black boy, and while a black boy, I often heard, Emmanuel, you don't even talk like you're black. Emmanuel, you're black, but you're not black, black. Emmanuel, you're like an Oreo, black on the outside, white on the inside. You see, I went to a predominantly white school, a college preparatory school, the number one school in Texas from grades five through 12. And while at that school, so many of my white friends were emotionally killing me unintentionally, Scott, through their words and through their actions. And so I wrote it, entitled it, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Boy, because it was as if I, the 12 to 16 year old version of me, was trying to communicate to my black brothers and sisters and my white brothers and sisters, so black boys don't have to suffer emotional damage, black girls don't have to suffer emotional damage, white boys and white girls can continue to be educated as they navigate their life um, with different people from different backgrounds. Emmanuel, I'm gonna guess my experience was similar to a lot of Caucasians that have read your books. I'm a white 52 year old, you know, leader in a company. I have three sons, uh, six, nine, and 10 year old, I'm married. And I found myself reading both books, having a similar kind of cadence. Okay, uh, here we go again. And then I would read the story and I would say, oh, that makes sense. And then I would read another story and say, oh, here we go. And then I would read it and say, well, that makes a lot of sense. Because a lot of what you're talking about is our mindsets and the language we use to describe things. I learned a tremendous amount about myself, about my friends, about people that aren't my friends. What is your intention with this new book aimed at black boys? So here's a kicker, Scott. It's uncomfortable conversations with a black boy, but it's not actually aimed at black boys. It's actually aimed at my non-people and non-persons of color. It's aimed at all youth. My intention is this. Scott, if you want to change a tree, yes, you could cut down the branches, you could pluck the leaves, but it's best that you address it at the root. And the youth are the root of curing racism in our society. Yeah. So the intention of the book was to equip my black boys with understanding and my black boys and girls with understanding like, hey, there's nothing wrong with you, but also equip my white boys and girls, the teens, the youth of understanding, hey, let's navigate our, in, our racial ignorances and our racial biases. Let me break this down, Scott, for all the listeners and leaders um, and executives that will watch, listen, et cetera. In our judicial system, we have degrees of murder. First degree murder, it was premeditated. Second degree murder, a crime of passion. Then you move down the rungs to involuntary manslaughter. And Scott, you may know where I'm going here. It was not intentional, but it still led to death. In the same manner, we have degrees of racism. First degree racism, maliciously saying the N-word or, or owning slaves. 
involuntary racism. You're so educated for a black man. Oh, you're so pretty for a black girl. I mean, you're not like those other black people. See, Scott, the thing in our society is this, and for everyone listening, catch this that I'm about to say. There's a difference between being racist and racially ignorant. So many people are like, I'm not a racist. I love all people. I have black friends. I have Hispanic friends. You cannot be racist, but be racially ignorant. You cannot be racist, but be racially insensitive. And my goal is to dismantle ignorance and insensitivity before it matures into racism. Beautifully said. One of the big takeaways I took from both books is recognizing my mindset, my belief systems, and the language I use to describe things. You use the criminal justice system as an example. Riff on that for a moment. Yeah, I mean, well, first off, there are several thoughts there, right? It's the fact of, I always try to draw parallels, Scott, because I may not get you to understand talking about race, but I might be able to get you to understand talking about the judicial system. I might get you to understand a concept talking about sports. I might get you to understand a concept talking about uh, exercise or education. And so even when I talk about the criminal justice system and the parallels and the examples I give there, it was really just a matter of understanding, right? Because there are so many branches of, of, of the criminal justice system and how it has for so long targeted and thus oppressed black and brown people. But when I'm not necessarily talking about the oppression aspect, Scott, how can I use that analogy to land a point? Emmanuel, you do a beautiful job, again, in both books of educating through stories and examples. You call, you call light to a lot of public situations. You don't tear anybody down, but you, you, you are very uh, uh, modern in terms of using examples where people have done things, usually in the public eye, oftentimes in celebrity status. You don't tear them down. You just use them as an example of what to learn from. I think a great one was your story about Kim Kardashian in Bo Derek. It's one of those stories that you kept pulling me one way and then another, and you got me to where you needed me to be at the end of the story. It's around cultural appropriation. Would you take a couple of minutes to kind of walk through that story? Because I had an epiphany as you took me as an educator to the other side of that whole story. So the most complex talking point, I would say, in regards to my book and in regards to, I I think, the the disconnect between black and white people and people of color and non-people of color is this concept of cultural appropriation, Scott. Listeners, it's this concept of what in the world is cultural appropriation? So the best analogy I could give for it is, remember in high school, when you're writing a paper, you are allowed to quote another author. You're allowed to take the work of another individual and put it in your own paper. However, you have to cite your sources. You have to let the reader know who originally created the work in which you are now borrowing. Because if you don't cite your sources, you are now stealing that work. Remember, in high school or in college, if you don't cite your sources, you may get suspended or expelled. The issue is not in borrowing the work. The issue is in borrowing the work and not citing your sources. Now it is stealing the work. When I bring up the Kim K and the Boderic braids, Kim K was braid, had her hair in a certain braided fashion years ago, and she attributed that style to Boderic, um, a, 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 a white uh, entertainer. 
when in fact those braids that Kim K was wearing is actually a traditional West African hairstyle, Fulani braids. And so there's a very fine line between praising someone and borrowing and stealing from someone. And so cultural appropriation, Scott, is is finicky, but I tried to explain it, one with the Kim K example, but also um, through the citing your sources and plagiarism example. Take it a step further, Emmanuel. This might seem like a boring topic to you, but blackface is still confusing to a lot of white people why that is offensive. You actually do an extraordinarily great job of talking about the history of blackface and Jim Crow. Can you just, for the last few Caucasians or non-black people in America that really need to understand with your passion, your honesty, and your intention, why that's such a great example of what not to do and why not to? Walk us through that. The best way to understand something in present day is to understand the history of said thing. Well said. So many people have an issue with this concept of the N-word because they don't actually understand the history of the N-word. They were born during the extinct usage of it or the latter days of it being used um, generally in our, in, our, in our speaking. And so when you understand the history of the N-word and how derogatory it was and how it was used as a replacement to re refer black people to dirt, et cetera, you can understand why it is so offensive, particularly when said by a white person. Now, why did I lead with that? Because blackface, what is the history there? Late 1800s, minstrel shows, that is when white people would paint themselves as black and they would maybe stuff their behinds with pillows to mock black women's features and their maybe large bottoms and they would take big red lipstick and paint on big lips over their faces to mock um, black, uh, black people's maybe large features, facial features, and then they would paint their faces black. And this was all to mock and to mimic and to ridicule black individuals. Mind you, the lead character of minstrel shows was called Jim Crow. Hence where we get the Jim Crow laws. So blackface isn't just a matter of, oh, I wanted to look like somebody for Halloween. Understand the history of blackface. Understand what blackface meant. Understand what blackface may still mean to some. Understand that blackface was a way to mock, mimic, ridicule black and brown people. So you may be doing it now innocently, but you have to understand what your innocence meant to other people. Emmanuel, you're really giving everybody a gift here because what you're telling people like me and people who aren't like me is think, research, understand, Educate yourself on the history because what might be, in your mind, an innocent, innocuous act could be highly offensive and damaging to other people if you don't understand the origin of that. And generally, it's just really good to not venture into territory that you don't fully understand. Let's go here. Let's pause here for a second if we can put the car in park. <clears throat> the other thing I'm saying, Scott, let's all remember, it's actually not that foreign, right? Some people are listening well, black people just shouldn't be that sensitive. Hispanics just need to right. not be that sensitive. I don't mean to be offensive. Let me put it in these terms, y'all. Most of you all listening to this have traveled either different states, at a minimum a foreign country, but at least to a friend's house. My parents are born and raised in Nigeria. Scott, you come with me to Nigeria and say we go to the village where my dad was born and say we stop at one of the chief's houses, one of the chiefs of that village. Scott, it would behoove you 
if I were to tell you the customs and practices of going into this chief's house. Now, look, Scott, when we walk in, take off your shoes, look him in the eye, right eye to right eye, shake his hand with your right hand. Do not shake his hand with your left hand. Uh, maybe prostrate forward or at least give a little bow and acknowledge him as chief so-and-so. And I would tell you this, Scott, because I would not want you to be offensive. Correct. Now, if you didn't do your research and if I didn't bother to tell you and if you didn't educate yourself, you might just walk into his house, dap him up or shake his hand, give him a hug, like maybe give him a kiss on the cheek like you would anybody else. But there are certain customs and practices based upon how you engage with certain individuals. We've all done this before. We've gone to, to Mexico or to Spain. We've gone to Hong Kong or to Singapore. We've gone to a friend's house. And when you walk into the friend's house, hey, please take your shoes off. Hey, please wash your hands before you eat. Hey, no smoking inside. We all have certain customs and practices we abide by with certain people. So let's just do so domestically as opposed to waiting to do so internationally. Thank you for that. Your credibility is uh, evident in all the books that you write that your intention is just to build an awareness. It's not, your, your agenda is to educate. It's not to diminish. It's not to intimidate. It's to educate. In fact, I learned so much in your first book prior to reading the new book out, which was that one of the struggles that minorities face. In fact, you actually mentioned that minorities here in America are actually the majority in the world, right? The majority of the people in the world are, in fact, not Caucasian. And that for so many years we hear about the first black person this, the first black person that, the first black person. We've never heard the first white person to do anything. <laughs> that there's a huge systemic imbalance where people of color have to fight for attention, fight for credit. Talk about that. Um, so here's a crazy thing. We never make a big deal out about, about the first white president. He's just the first president. We don't make a big deal about a white-owned restaurant. It's just a restaurant. We don't make a big deal about the first white Harvard grad. They're just a Harvard grad. We don't make a big deal about a historically white college and university. It's just a college and university because in our country, for something to exist in its natural state, it's implicit that it is white or white owned because that's the way in which the country was founded without opportunities for people of color. And so as a result, that's why now there's so much excitement around when, when, when you see a first black president or when you see a, a, a black vice president, it's not just inherently, oh my God, no, it's because for so long, it was impossible for this to exist. I said this to Oprah, Scott. I said, you can't be something, or it is hard to be something unless you see something. And so now when we see black achievement and black excellence, it gives young black boys like those and young black girls like myself when I was younger, the opportunity to attain, at least a more realistic opportunity to attain. Emmanuel, what role do black leaders, black influencers, black elected officials, parents have in this whole conversation? I ask because I'm a big fan of Tyler Perry, right? Who's not a fan of Tyler Perry? His philanthropy knows no bounds. 
his, his, his positivity is contagious. As I was reading your book, I was thinking about role models and about stereotypes. And I may have the name of the movie series wrong, Diary of a Mad Black Woman. And I yeah. love that mm -hmm. show, but I also think it, it reinforces some stereotypes. What do you say to your, to your black friends and influencers on their role in helping to shape this narrative and educate their non-black friends on how to see, how to feel, how to speak, how to think? That's such a tough question because the emotional state of all human beings is different. And I can specifically speak to the emotional state currently of so many of my black and brown brothers and sisters just based upon the graphic images we're constantly seeing and being fed on social media and in society. I personally do my best to be an adequate representation, um, the best representation of myself to be an adequate representation of creativity, of artistry, of education, of philanthropy, of kindness. I try to be an adequate representation. And more than that, I try to be available, Scott. Like so somebody has to, to show you something. You gotta see it so you can believe it. In second grade, um, I believe his name was Rich Cody. He played for the Los Angeles Rams, St. Louis Rams at the time. He comes into my class with this football jersey. He was friends with my second grade teacher. I vividly remember that day, which must have been roughly 23 years ago. I don't remember that day because he was a Hall of Famer, an all-pro player. I don't even know if he was any good. Don't know if he ever got on the field. But I saw him and I said, wait, I can play in the NFL. So to my black leaders, it's just making yourselves available so that people can see you and say, wait, I can be like her. I can be like him. Emmanuel, what are you encouraged about? It's a good question, man. Um, I am encouraged. <laughs> I am encouraged that there is now a greater desire for action to match intention. For so long, Scott, companies, corporations, leaders, CMOs, CEOs, well, you know, we have really good intentions, but the action did not match because the leader did not know those whom he or she was trying to lead. So instead, they're trying to lead loudly and push something forward, but the person you're trying to lead isn't actually being served. Finally, though, Scott, I'm seeing people say, wait a second, it's not enough to have a good intention. Does my action correlate to my intention? If my intention doesn't correlate to my action, it was all in vain. Um, so I'm very encouraged by people making sure choices of, wait a second, I'm trying to be allies to my black brothers and sisters. Let me ask them the best way to serve them. Emmanuel, let's close with this. You use the word ally, you just did. You use it throughout your books. Talk to me and those that are like me, a 52-year-old white male with influence, some power, how do I become an ally? Specifically, what would you like to see and hear out of people like me differently than you have perhaps in the past? Well, the first thing I would say is understand that we need your allyship because the only way to achieve justice is through your allyship. Ben Franklin, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are affected. So your allyship is imperative, is the first thing. The second thing is understand being an ally looks different in different cities, for different families, in different states, and for different people. So I can't just say, hey, to be an ally to Emmanuel looks like calling him every day. 
Because to some people, it may just look like lending me a hand. It may just look like helping wash their kids. It may be look like helping coach a youth league. It may look like coaching, going out and marching and, and protesting with me. It may look like helping me edit an uncomfortable conversation. Allyship looks differently for different people. Understand whom you are trying to serve and ask them the best way to serve them. But remember, justice can't be served until you serve. Emmanuel, on your next book, make sure your byline adds the word educator to your master's degree, your sports analysis, your NFL player, fortune, YouTube sensation. Thank you for your generosity, your clarity, and your inspiration. And most of all, to your point, your congruency between your actions and your intentions and your behavior. Thank you for your time today, sir. Scott, it is a pleasure. And make sure my book gets primetime real estate behind you. I see my guy, but my guy, Bob Iger's ride of a lifetime. He's over your right shoulder, I believe, maybe your left. I want the other shoulder. I'm well, checking you know in what? on you, you know Scott. What? I'm, let me see. I, I can't take down Damon John because I'm trying to land him. But you know, oh, this he, guy, he just, this he guy, just this Scott me, actually. Miller guy, get rid of that yeah. book. Yeah, Let's get rid of this one right here. How about that, man? <laughs> Scott, <laughs> my man, it's been a Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here. How do we top this next week on leadership? Thanks for your time.